our reading is from the letter of Paul to the Philippians, uh, verses, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. You may be seated. Well, good morning. You have your Bibles open, I see already, to Philippians 1. Uh, you can turn them on. That's appropriate here, too. I'm turned on up here. Um, as we mentioned last week, the context of this letter is Paul in prison. We don't, we can't say entirely where he's imprisoned. Most of the evidence, though, points to Rome. We know that Paul was uh, imprisoned more than more times than we have accounted for in the Bible. Paul actually says in Second Corinthians that he was imprisoned more than most for the work that he had done. So he is imprisoned somewhere, likely Rome, as I'll make my argument for in a little bit. And he's writing to the Philippian church, who is experienced experiencing increased persecution for their own faith. And our task, really, when we get into any New Testament epistle, and, and definitely for this one this morning, our task is try, to try and put ourselves in the shoes of the Philippian church if we want to get all that God intends for us to get out of this passage. So think about what it would look like, what it would feel like to be the Philippian church, the guy that started this church, that planted it. We haven't seen him in years. We hear he's in prison in Rome. We don't know what's going on, but we know that we're experiencing increased persecution for our own faith. And then on top of that, we see that around the empire, there are people selfishly vying to gain the influence and the authority that Paul had now that he's not free anymore. So feeling that, Think about that moment when Epaphroditus walks in. He gathers everybody together and he says, I've got a letter to you from Paul. Everybody gathers around. Someone begins to read. And then they arrive at this phrase in the beginning of our passage that we read in English, and I want you to know. All right, That was a really common Greek phrase to acknowledge that you're transitioning from your greeting down into the, the body, the meat of what, what you want to say. So in our you know, today's terms, it would be something like, all right, now let's get down to business. And they, the Philippians, I'm thinking, they're, they're thinking, we're finally going to get a report on Paul. How is Paul doing? We know he's been in prison. And instead of getting a report on Paul, they get a report on the gospel. And instead of a bleak report, they get a glowing one. So what's going on here? Paul and the Philippian church, they're, they're viewing what's going on with very different filters. 
they have different ways that they process the information that they're receiving, and it leads them to two different conclusions. And all of us have experienced this, I'm sure, in some way or another. I was thinking this week about the, the day after Angela and I were married. <laughs> we were running through an airport trying to catch an airplane we were terribly late for. And it was one of those times where we, you're, you're asking everybody in security, can we, can we butt you in line? Can we get ahead of, ahead of you? After security, we're literally running, trying to put our computers back in our bags, put our belts on, our shoes on, yelling down the terminal, please hold the door. They heard us, they held the door. We, we, I mean, we really just made it on. We're the last people on the flight. We were sitting down and I looked over at Angela, my new wife, and I said, that was awesome. <laughs> I mean, we should purposefully be late just to get to do that again. And as the words are coming out of my mouth, I can see the tears streaming down her cheeks because we had very different filters that we used to process the events that were unfolding around, around us at that time. The filters that we use to process the events of our lives, they will drastically change the way we understand what's going on. And this is exactly what's going on in the text. Paul has one filter and the Philippian church has another filter. So what I want to do in this text is answer three simple questions about this filter that Paul is using to process the events that are going on in his life. And the questions, they're written in your bulletin. What is this filter? How does this filter practically change us? And then thirdly, and maybe most importantly, how can we have that same filter? That's what I want to do. So first, what is Paul's filter? What is the difference between the way that Paul is processing the events and the way that the Philippian church is processing the events. The difference is simple. The Philippian church is concerned about Paul and, and maybe secondarily implications on themselves, but I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. The Philippian church is primarily concerned about Paul and Paul is primarily concerned about the gospel. That's the main difference. And we see it right off the bat in verse 12. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what is happening to me has really served to advance the gospel. You hear him say, it's not about me. The gospel is most important, and that is going well. So Paul's primary concern, it's the gospel. It's God's big picture. It's his plan of redemption going in a crowd across the whole world. So I'm going to call this filter that Paul's using a gospel filter. That's what this filter is. He's processing these events with a gospel filter. And because of that, he's not writing to the Philippian church telling them whether the guards are being nice to him or not. He's writing the Philippian church reporting on how many of the guards have heard the gospel. Look at verse 13. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. So how are things going? They're going pretty well. The entire imperial guard, shift by shift, is chained to the greatest evangelist in human history. And, and these guards, as they go off their shifts, that's not the only place they work, they're going to other parts of the capital to serve, some of them probably into Nero's palace. And they're reporting, according to the text, the things that Paul is telling them. It's going very well. 
And I think that is why Paul, at the end of this passage, not the, the end of this letter to the Philippians, he actually says, all the saints greet you, especially those in Caesar's household. Because the gospel is going from the imperial guard into Nero's palace. And if you think about it, really only imprisonment probably could have given Paul that kind of access to the most important people, the most influential people in the Roman Empire. But I can imagine at this point the Philippian church saying something like, all right, Paul, we get it. But what about all these people out there slandering you? All these people wanting to take the authority to usurp the power that you have in the Christian church. And what does he say to that? What then? Yeah, I I imagine the modern English equivalent being like, who cares? Who cares? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And now I have to confess that for me, this has been kind of a convicting passage over at least the past decade of my life. Because I've been guilty of looking at churches who don't do church exactly like I think church should be done and, and really viewing them as worthless. If you don't do church the way I want to do church, the way I think we should do church, you might as well pack it up. But I've been around long enough to see that God uses other models of church. And my concern isn't to judge the models and motives of other churches. My job is to praise God when Christ is proclaimed because I've seen him use other models of churches. Angel and I have family members who have been brought into the faith through some of the models that I would vilify the most. Our role is simply to praise God when Christ is proclaimed. But there's another thing I want to be careful of here. I don't want to throw the Philippian church under the bus. You know, it wasn't like they had some truly evil motive here. Their filter is concerned for Paul. Remember, Paul's concern is the gospel. Their concern is for Paul. It's not an evil motive, but it's an incomplete one. So it's not an evil filter, but it's an incomplete filter. That's the problem with the Philippian church. They just have an incomplete way to process all the events as they're unfolding around them. And so with that in mind, the question we need to ask when we are interacting with this text is in what ways might we also have an incomplete filter? So I can... I can think of a lot, but I'm only going to say two. You know, I know what it's like to not enjoy your job. I'm not talking about this job. I'm four weeks in. I'm really enjoying it so far. (laughs) But I've had jobs that I don't enjoy before. And I know, even though I'm new here, I've talked with enough of you to know there are people in this room who don't enjoy their jobs. And I'm sure Paul didn't enjoy being in prison. But there is a greater purpose in our lives that can transcend even a season of not enjoying our jobs. Even though our jobs might feel like prison, might God have a purpose for us in that job? Someone to talk with, or maybe it's someone that needs to talk with you. Does God have a purpose in that season of enduring a job that we don't like? That's one possible incomplete filter. A second one, you know, all my life, I have heard people lament how large Orlando is becoming. Uh, if, I'm curious, how many grew up in Orlando? There aren't many. Okay, that's, that's actually a good number for a room like this. If you grew up here, this is no longer the town you remember from childhood. 
if you're over like 10. I did see a 10-year-old raise his hand out there. (laughs) Orlando is 2.5 million people in the greater Orlando area, and it's supposed to double in the next 10 years. We're supposed to beat 5 million people in the next 10 years. According to the Orlando International Airport, we are tracking exactly 10 years behind LA right now in terms of growth. That causes a lot of problems. You know, the I-4 Ultimate Project, when it's completed, we will have already outgrown it. And this growth that we're experiencing, it's not just numbers, it's also diversity. You know, and, and that is another thing that a lot of people are uncomfortable with. And I don't want to downplay the legitimate uh, consequences of a city growing like ours has. But a gospel filter would drive us to ask the question, is there a gospel purpose in it? You know, in Oxford, Mississippi, where I come from, we, uh, we had a number of church planters ready to go. But our town was so small that we didn't have any place to send them in our, in our immediate context. You know, you look at this church in this growing and changing context of greater Orlando, I don't care how good our partnerships are with RTS and with crew, I don't think we could ever have enough church planters. I mean, you look out among this city and all the opportunities and all the people coming through RTS and crew and Orlando Grace, and I think this church could be a church planting factory. And, and it's not just church planting either. I want to make sure that we keep the gas down on sending missionaries all over the world. But as Andy was talking about, we can't ignore the fact that literally every nation in the world has come to us. And, and that would be true even if we didn't have Epcot. Every nation is here. And so we get excited about the gospel opportunities of that growth and that diversity. And so we partner with people like Bridges to be able to bring these people in our homes, to love them and share with them the thing that we care about the most. Then as we apply this gospel filter to more and more areas of our life, more and more trials that we endure, it can't help but change us. This is the second point. How does a gospel filter change us? In our text, we see two ways that it changes us. It makes us joyful and it makes others bold. Us joyful and others bold. So first, joyful. Look at verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I rejoice. So Paul's situation, it was nothing short of dire. He's on the verge of losing his ministry. He's on the verge of losing his life by his own account in this this letter. And he's rejoicing. And there are two things that I really need to clarify for us to understand what's going on. First, there are different types of suffering. All right? there, there's the type of suffering, biblically, that's meant to lead us to Christ. Secondly, there's a type of suffering that, that we endure because God wants to give us a more profound depth of character, conforming us into the image of his son. And then there is a category for suffering that is predominantly there for gospel opportunities so that the gospel would go forward in a more significant way. And I think that's what we're looking at in Paul's situation. Second clarification, what does it mean to rejoice? Does it mean that whenever something hard happens, that we're supposed to make sure we don't cry, we're supposed to smile and and sing praise songs the whole way through the trial? 
Just force that smile. No. That can't be what Paul is intending here because we have whole books of the Bible like Job and Lamentations that are nothing but crying and arguing out with God. Why has this happened? What is your purpose? We have whole chapters of Psalms by King David lamenting the trials that he's going through. So Paul isn't saying if things get tough, you need to make sure you smile and not shed a tear in front of anybody. That's not what Paul is talking about. So what does it mean to rejoice in our trials? And for this analogy, I need to give credit to J.D. Shaw at the church that I'm coming to you from. Christian joy is ballast in your life. I don't know how many of you are sailors or boaters, but ballast. Ballast is the, the weight that you put under the boat is it, to make sure that it, that it stays afloat. So, you know, if you have a boat and you put cargo on the top, it gets top heavy and it flips over. But when you have ballast, when you have a tank under the hull where you can insert sand or water, you can put as much cargo as you want on top and you can endure whatever the storm might throw at you. Ballast causes these boats to be able to carry cargo and endure trials. And in the same way, Joy, Christian joy is the ballast that gets us through the hard times in our life. When troubles come, and they will, Jesus promises us, in this life you will have troubles. When troubles come, you won't sink. You will have a peace and an understanding and a joy that transcends whatever trial is coming your way. Because in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our trials will not have the final word. That's the promise. That's the joy. That's the ballast. And I want to reason this out just a little bit with you. What does it mean that our trials won't have the final word? Imagine that you owe $50,000 in credit card bills. $50,000. It's your past due. The creditors are calling But you know something no one else does. You know that in six months, you will be the beneficiary to a trust fund that will give you $50 million in six months. Are you worried about the $50,000 debt? No. When those creditors call, you smile. When they threaten you, you laugh. Because you know that something's going to happen in just six months that's going to change everything. Those debts, they will not have the final word. And a gospel filter, it helps us to know that no matter what happens, our sin will not have the final word. No matter what. And that gives us this ballast to endure the Christian life because we know what's coming. This ballast that will produce hope, it will produce kindness, patience, love, and in this context, joy. I was watching uh, an interview a few years ago with John Piper. It was just after his retirement from, I think, 35 years of pastoring Bethlehem Bethlehem Baptist Church. And the interviewer was quite bold, and he said, "Uh, Dr. Piper, you know, you're no spring chicken anymore. You're retired, you're in your 70s, you've had cancer. You are closer to the finish line now than you are to the start line by a long shot. How now do you view death? And I loved the way we could see his gospel filter without a pause John Piper closed his eyes and he said, sinlessness, I can almost taste it. 
That's a gospel filter. So it gives us joy. And then secondly, it makes others bold. Look at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, you would think that Paul, imprisoning Paul, would hinder the proclamation of the gospel. You would think that others in the empire would begin to think, you know, think, second, think second thoughts before they, they go and do the same thing. And you know that was the Roman Empire's intention. But imprisoning Paul, it only hinders the proclamation of the gospel if they crush Paul's spirit. You know, if he endures this kind of suffering with determination and with hope and with joy, it can have the exact opposite effect. And this is one of the reasons 25 years after the Tiananmen Square incident, many of you remember this. I don't know if that guy was a Christian or not, but 25 years later, China is still trying to wipe from the internet internet, any image of that one lone unarmed man standing in front of a line of Chinese tanks in the Tiananmen Square. Because they know that somebody with that kind of ballast in his life, that person can make others bold to do the same thing. And that's, I think, what we have going on in our text. And I was thinking about all the, all the ways this applies to us, and, and I want to speak to middle and high schoolers for a moment. If you were in middle school or high school, 6th grade through 12th grade is what I have in mind, You know, you're in the hardest part, I think, of your life to be able to be firm in your faith. There's more peer pressure on you. You're more easily, you know, tossed to and fro. You know, I look back at my middle school and high school, and I was not one of those people standing firm. But I remember the people who were. I remember the way they were challenging me and the way that I lived because of the way they stood firm. They stood firm in their joy, and they began to make other people bold. And you have a unique opportunity in 6th through 12th grade to be that kind of person who stands firm in their faith and they make others bold. And so the question you have to answer, and the question you get to answer, is will you be that type of a person? A gospel filter, it makes us joyful, it makes others bold, but I still haven't answered the most important question. How do we get it? How do we get a gospel filter? This is my last point. You know, I don't think Paul knew exactly what was going to happen to him in prison. I, I, maybe God told him and Paul didn't tell us, but it seems from the letter that Paul doesn't know what's going to happen. He, he has hunches. He's seen a few things that he can report. But Paul maintains a gospel filter because he knew two things. These are the two keys to having a gospel filter. He knew what God had done and he knew what God was going to do. Those are the keys. So first, what God has done. Paul knew it. Paul knew that God had a history in the Bible of using bad circumstances for the good of his people. You know, you see stories like this littered all over the Bible. Probably one of the most famous ones is Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his own brothers, taken to Egypt. In Egypt, he was accused of certain improprieties. And then he was falsely imprisoned where he, he didn't know how things were going to go. But through God's providences, he used those trials to raise Joseph up to be Pharaoh's number one person. And do you remember what happened? Because Joseph was there, Egypt was ready for the coming famine. And when the famine hit and every other country was looking for food, Egypt had food. So where did they go to find food? Egypt. And guess who came looking? Joseph's family. Israel. 
So because of Joseph's trials, God's people were saved. Paul knew he served that kind of a God, and he knew of another Jew, falsely accused, arrested, thrown in prison, and executed. Jesus Christ. And Paul knew this, the greatest injustice that has ever happened on the history of the earth, the execution of a perfect man, the execution of the Son of God, that this would turn out for salvation for the world. So if Paul knew if God could use this for the good of man and the glory of God, why would it be any different in prison? Why would it be any different in our job? Why would it be any different in our family? This is the God we served. He knew what God had done. And then secondly and lastly, he knew, he knew what God will do. In Romans 8, again, with a very clear gospel filter, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So what is that glory? What is Paul talking about that's yet to be revealed to us? All right, to get that answer, we're going to have to turn all the way right in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to read the first five verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That is the glory to come. Jesus is coming back with our heavenly trust fund because we're heirs in Jesus Christ. And that is going to give us the ballast to continue to live this life with joy and to resist the creditor down here at the door who's going to constantly want to change and divert our attention away from the glory that is to come. About six years ago, I think it was, I was at a conference here in Orlando and there was a pastor named Matt Chandler who was talking to us about his battle with brain cancer. He, his head was bald from the chemo he was going through. Uh, he was, had flu symptoms because of the chemo. But he was delivering this talk, a, a talk that comes across, you know, a lot uh, more real from somebody like that than maybe me who's never had cancer. And I'll never forget this line. He said, you know, we all want Pauline theology, but we don't want Pauline pain. But the problem is that Pauline theology is most clearly seen through pain. So what is Pauline theology? I credit Dr. Furtado at RTS for this definition. But Pauline theology is believing in a God big enough that he cares about and is involved in every single aspect of our lives. But our challenge is the culture we live in. Because in 21st century Western society, our our main Goal in life is what? Generally speaking, comfort. Comfort's what we're living for. 
You know, you look at the Philippians and every other culture largely that has ever existed, they're not living for comfort, they're, they're living to survive. They have a survival mentality. We in America, we can think of our life as this, this timeline of comfort with intermittent blips of pain along the way. But what every other culture has experienced and what the Bible tells us is true is our life is one timeline of pain with intermittent blips of comfort along the way. And because we live in the society that we do, it's harder for us to understand and embrace biblical Pauline theology when, when times get tough for us. Pauline theology put into practice is much more natural in a survival mentality than it is a comfort mentality. And so we are going to have to fight for this much more than most cultures in the history of the earth. And I get a picture of this, uh, an affirmation of this, um, pretty much every car trip I take with my kids. We, we just drove from Mississippi to Orlando, North Mississippi to Orlando, so about 12 hours, and my kids would complain that they were bored as they were watching movies in the car. Movies in the car. I mean, it, when I was growing up, if we could watch movies in the car, I would beg for a 12-hour car trip. <laughs> you know, and... I would just look out the window. That's all we could do. And then my mom, growing up, she would have loved to look out the window, but the car was too full of cigarette smoke to be able to see anything. Her mom, at the same age, had never heard of something called a full-length movie, and her mom was pulled around town by a smelly horse. And I guarantee you that my great-grandmother, being pulled around the town in a smelly horse, complained less than my kids did going at 75 miles an hour watching full-length movies. Because we have grown accustomed to comfort and we don't know how to deal with pain. So the question we have to ask ourselves as we read this text is what kind of a filter do we use to process the events that unfold around us? Because if our, main, if our main filter is us, if our main filter is our comfort, then we will be robbed of the joy we were intended to have in the Christian life. If there's one promise, one promise that we can take hold of in this life, it is joy among any kind of trial, any kind of suffering, and any kind of pain. But if we have a gospel filter, there will be joy and others will be made bold. And so I'm going to finish, as you'll see, I always do, by praying that this would be true for us here, that whatever trials we're experiencing, we would be experiencing joy because we process them through the gospel, and that others in this room, in our homes, in our workplace, others would be made bold because of the joy, the ballast they see in our life. Let's pray. God, I am so thankful for all the ways that you provide, that you don't tell us we need to endure trials to come to you. We don't need to endure trials to merit you, but you have done everything already to earn our salvation in Jesus Christ. And I thank you that you will eliminate every trial that we have. But in the meantime, you will use them you will use them for our growth, for our good, and for your glory. And I pray that that would be true even more for every single person in this room. I pray that we would have this Pauline perspective 
this gospel filter wherever we are. And we ask this in the only name that we can come to you in anything, Jesus Christ. Amen.